Greetings. This is Bashiri, and I'd like to welcome you to the 27th episode of the Love, Peace, and Confrontation podcast. Of course, I greet you in love, peace, and confrontation. Black men, I love you. Black women, I love you. Black babies, I love you. What will we tell our sons? Let's get out here and be the light. Let's recognize that we are the solution and that we house the capacity and the wherewithal to mitigate and resolve many of the issues that are pervasive in our communities. Moreover, uh, let's come to terms with the fact that we are the answers to every prayer that we've ever prayed and or articulated, and that ultimately we are the gods that we seek. All religions be damned. If it does not serve you, you should not serve it. Let's go ahead and fully capitalize upon the inexhaustible ingenuity that is resident within the melaninated mind, the overall black experience. Black men, what up? Black women, what up? Black babies, what's good? Um, kind of want to get at today topic uh, that kind of deals with the subject matter uh, appertaining to uh, meaning of uh, mythology and madness and it's kind of a a continuation from the last uh, podcast episode I kind of touched on it but I felt like it would be uh, apropos to really give it a a full treatment uh, as it pertains to meaning mythology and madness Um, with respect to uh, the ways in which we negotiate the terms uh, and um, the landscape of what it means um, to cultivate understanding um, within the uh, epistemological uh, framing of how we organize, how we catalog, uh, how we uh, make sense of our experiences, right? And um, dealing with knowledge and dealing with the limits thereof, dealing with um, the social underpinnings of how even the scope and appreciation and apprehension of comprehension, you know, how we comprehend, how we uh, lay hold and Um, make sense of varied experiences that comprise um, well that comprise our grasp of who we are right our personality uh, how we perceive others uh, and then uh, overall with those two in tandem right uh, self-perception and perception of the other Uh, how we now take uh, those understandings and we meet out for ourselves our place uh, in the world, you know, where we uh, find that meaning in and of itself is derivative, uh, you know, on the basis of these complex social engagements, right? And so ultimately... You know, I have a myriad of conversations throughout the course of a week and I'm speaking to different ones and I'm trying to ascertain, you know, sort of the pulse 
of how people feel about meaning and where is it on the uh, hierarchy of needs, so to speak. Uh, and so I, I guess the general, the general feel was that, hey, meaning is paramount, right? Meaning occupies an esteemed place of privilege, right? And so it's just interesting that a lot of the times we just wake up and we get into the routine of whatever has been established um, per habit, you know, what we've been shown, uh, what we've learned, how we've been socialized, right? Whatever um, pedagogical influences that we have uh, been submerged or we have found ourselves to uh, become acclimated as it were with. Uh, it's almost like we get into this automatic uh, mode of being, this unconscious movement to a rhythm that's become familiar, so familiar that we don't even uh, recognize the, uh, the ways in which that rhythm is punctuating our every move, our every waking moment, you understand? Uh, it becomes just so habituated. And so it's interesting in that regard that unless um, we are forced either through some sort of event or through conversation um, that we don't really think about the ways in which that we've been inundated and or indoctrinated uh, via various media channels and or sources uh, that then become incorporated and incarnated in our behavior and our thinking and et cetera. And so um, having these conversations and listening to, you know, kind of the pulse of what people were articulating they're from. I've kind of ascertained uh, that meaning is, is an ongoing, um, it's like an ongoing investigation or pursuit. Um, unconsciously though, or in some instances, like I've already stated, not pursued at all, depending on the person's um, state of mind, depending on their particular um, engagement, right, with, with their surroundings and with their environment and how they've been shaped. So um, I don't want to oversimplify or speak in general terms in that regard because there's such, um, not to sound redundant, but there's such meaningful specificity that pervades the current landscape that we are, uh, that I am rather trying to articulate and speak to. But at the risk of doing what, exactly what I don't want to do, which is making these oversimplified generalizations, suffice it to say that meaning for most persons um, at some point is at the forefront of mind 
Um, but throughout the course of human experience and life and trying to survive and, you know, um, trying to make sure that the basic needs for the survival endeavor are attended to, sometimes that, that meaningful pursuit of apprehending and understanding the self gets kind of drowned out by the noise of the day-to-day -day experience. And so with that in mind, one could understand how easily um, we could become distracted from um, the most important pursuit of understanding the, the purpose, right, and or the rationale or reasoning for uh, the ways in which we may have been uh, uniquely um, attuned and or gifted with respect to the environment and the political social circumstances that we find ourselves in, right? Um, to the degree that we could become an active agency for uh, the good. <laughs> and I know that's a mouthful, and I know I said a lot, and I hope I didn't lose anybody with um, that almost uh, tangential kind of for foray in, into what it is that I'm hoping to um, unearth per the subject matter, right? And so we're talking about, again, meaning, and we're talking about uh, mythology and madness. And of course, this is always uh, within the scope of understanding the audience, right? Understanding who we are, uh, uh, appertaining to the uh, social, political, economic, uh, environmental, biogenetic circumstances that we find ourselves in. Uh, within the overall context of white supremacy, hegemony, um, economic um, deprivation, uh, and domination, you know what I'm saying? With respect to, again, those who have been assigned or who have been understood via the assignation of politically white in juxtaposition to those who are uh, framed in terms that adhere to uh, the uh, descriptive, the, the, the linguistic descriptive analysis pertaining to uh, politically black. And so it's, it's always within that frame. Um, that's always what I'm speaking to uh, and, and trying to get us to understand how it is that we can position and, and, and remain poised uh, to the degree that we can, again, meaningfully resist, repel, um, and overcome the circumstances that we find ourselves in as such, as politically black men, women, and children, right? And so with that being said, um, back to, you know, our, our more direct um, kind of investigation of the subject matter at hand, uh, appertaining to, again, meaning, um, myth, and madness. And so, again, 
Meaning is, is, is the highest end that we pursue, right? But often it gets lost because we find ourselves in uh, the sort of circumstances that have us living, you know, hand to mouth. Uh, and, and while we're distracted by um, trying to situate ourselves uh, in the midst of desperate scenarios, circumstances, um, and uh, situations, uh, we're still being shaped by what we're in. We're still being um, molded, right? There is still um, a formation that is occurring right within the context of these de desperate scenarios, circumstances, and situations. And so, um, meaning for us, outcomes, right, potentialities, what we can accomplish are all being hampered or they, all, they are all being uh, groomed, right, by the way, uh, again, we are socialized and how we are taught to view ourselves and our surroundings and others who who may have similar experiences in our immediate sphere of influence. And so we're being, we're being um, shaped. And the circumstances, the, the, the sociological, the economic, the political, etc., coalesce and they all contribute and uh, how we are inundated, how we imbibe, uh, how we now become uh, uh, sort of a, a uh, incarnation of the things that we have internalized, you know, for better or worse. And it's my, well, it's my thinking that while all these important variables are occurring um, consciously and unconsciously, what more so um, what more so has the greater influence in my opinion is what's happening at the unconscious level while we are being again preoccupied with trying to mitigate the survival threat. You know, so we're being shaped and there's nothing more powerful in the human experience in terms of shaping uh, than, uh, in my opinion, narrative. The stories that are disseminated, uh, that kind of shape for us possibility, that, sh that kind of disclose to us our role, right, <laughs> um, in society that give us some kind of insight and handle upon the pecking order, socially, politically, etc. And it's interesting because I was having a conversation yesterday with how uh, the narrative is employed with respect to the, the shaping of the consciousness of our children relatively early. And it's employed, of course, through uh, benign channels like cartoons and you know what I mean? Um, and just looking at uh, some of the ways in which, under the guise of entertainment, there is a, a through line 
of a paradigm that subsists and maintains the status quo with respect to who's who, okay, and where one belongs uh, within the broad scope of social engagement. Of course, all of this is politically and economically informed, right? And for our purposes, we're looking at the ways in which our young people and their minds are influenced and indoctrinated, often at the subconscious level, um, under the auspices of innocent, non-threatening fun. <laughs> and that's what makes the robbing of the minds of our young people from a very young age all the more sinister because as parents, we're lulled to sleep ourselves to believe that what we're placing in front of our young minds is benign and innocent and without any sort of ulterior motivations that will keep them cut off from realizing the fullest capacities of their innate potentialities. And so, meaning, again, mythology, the narrative. Let's get into the mythology. So, a lot of times mythology is associated um, with respect to religious underpinnings, right? So there's this sacred mythology. I, I spoke about it a lot in previous podcasts, sacred mythology dealing with um, religious myth and uh, kind of bypassing again the political and or economic interests uh, that religious myths serve uh, in the maintenance, uh, the institutional maintenance of power, power differentials that exist between uh, politically white and politically black people within the scope of white supremacy, domination, etc. And so I spoke at length in, in a series that dealt with uh, the politics of religion. But I, I, I just wanted to uh, juxtapose that there are uh, at least, at the very minimum, two flavors of, of you know, uh, that whole to-do, you know, when we're talking about mythology. You know, there's secular mythology, right? And then there's sacred mythology. And so the secular mythology, like I said, may, may have to do more with the uh, dogmatic religious iterations that I spoke at length to. And then there's, there's the secular um, component to mythology um, that a lot of times has to do with um, uh, unquestioning loyalty to some kind of um, patriotic dogma or or uh, story, right, that doesn't look at the, uh, the nuanced um, complexity of, say, um, a country. You know what I mean? We, we get these stories that are like, again, um, the United States of America, land of the free, home of the brave, and, and not really looking at the ways in which it has not been the land of the free, that it has not been uh, the home of the brave in uh, certain historical uh, circumstances, 
in terms of how the country was founded and the uh, genocidal and um, uh, murderous uh, uh, underpinnings of the founding of the United States of America, the thievery of both land and people, you understand, and kind of wanting to sweep all those things under the rug or to um, use a rationale such as manifest destiny to kind of um, sear the consciousness, you know what I mean, so that we can just bat an eye <laughs> at many of the egregious and um, really uh, unscrupulous ways in which uh, the United States of America has come to be uh, exactly what it is. And so there is this ongoing commitment to maintaining a certain perspective that doesn't allow for a authentic critique, right, of the immorality uh, that runs through and through and interwoven within the tapestry and all fabric of the U.S. of A. And that's just an example, you know, and it's the easiest example that comes to mind, uh, especially um, when, we're, when we're in this kind of uh, tumultuous time, you know, in, uh, in our country, you understand, you know, with, with immense polariz polarization. Uh, we have so many polarizing personalities, perspectives, and views. And uh, everybody's drawing lines in the sand and everybody's staking their claim to whatever their um, uh, ideological uh, resonance, you know what I'm saying, whatever they resonates with them on those terms. And so, and so I think that's pretty easy to understand that they, there's, they are these two factions with respect uh, to uh, mythology, sacred mythology, secular mythology, but they, but they both have in common is this um, sort of religious allegiance, this dogmatic, unquestioning allegiance, and that's dangerous. It's dangerous when uh, you cannot critically reflect upon uh, what it is uh, you are being inundated with uh, via information, right? I said before uh, in many other preceding podcasts that information is a vital life resource, right? And a function of uh, racism, of course, is the procuring of vital life resources over and against the a development of the ability and or capacity of the targeted population to do likewise within, again, the broad framework of competition uh, informed by uh, the maintenance of economic dominance. Okay, that's what we look at when we look at racism. There is an economic impetus that informs its function. Okay, it serves a particular end, a materialistic end. Acquisition, you know, it serves again uh, that acquisitive hunger, okay. That that is, of course, at the substratum is greed, is dominance, it's having more than what you need, right? At the expense of everyone else, 
And so there's this inherent selfishness and self-concern at the core of it, you know, when we're dealing with racism as economics. And so the danger, again, like I said, um, information being a vital life resource and not being able to critically reflect upon what you are being inundated by, how you are being informed uh, per information, it leads to indoctrination. And again, it leads to an unquestioning allegiance to something that may potentially be not only harmful to those who are on the opposing side of that spectrum, that ideological spectrum, but also to the person who holds it. You know, um, sometimes people become suicidal to maintain their position in their posture to the death, you know, and they will feel as if that death is an honorable one because they never breached the integrity of their commitment to what serves as a place of primacy in their lives via the narrative they've been exposed to and how they relate and come to self-understanding with respect to that narrative. So this is where it gets, it gets personal for people, you know? And I, I, I know, I say a lot of times on here tongue in cheek, I don't know why people are mad at me when I attack their ideas, but I know full well why people are angry and are upset when I attack these ideas because their identity is interwoven in their ideas and their ideology. It's conflated for them. So an attack or a critique at an idea is an attack and a critique upon them. So there's, there's, there's also a, um, a quality of arrogance in, inherent in such an a, uh, internal posturing, okay? Because I think all of us should be humble enough uh, to undergo self-critique or even critique from um, those persons we are in relationship with who offer a third-party perspective, right, and help us to see uh, beyond our personal blind spots. That's a part of our development, right, along the continuum of human experience, at least in my opinion. And it feels like um, most often people are trying to shield themselves or protect themselves from being uh, <laughs> being made to feel the discomfort of growth. And so they, they want to maintain, you know, the comfort of being familiar, the comfort of having not to evaluate, having not to investigate, and having not to explore uh, a potential and or opinion uh, that is different and or beyond their current mode of understanding and being. People just don't want to do that typically. And so it's interesting to see um, as you pull at these ideological threads and these ideas and you, and you undergo a critical analysis of the same, you start to see people unravel. And I'll, I'll be honest, you know, the social, social media space <laughs> kind, of, kind of brings out the, 
guilty pleasure of doing that to people. And, you know, maybe that's wrong on my part. But I will admit that sometimes I do kind of get a guilty joy from pulling at those threads and, you know, kind of watching people, uh, for lack of better terms, uh, fall apart because they become so immersed with their beliefs that just even, I won't even call them attacks, but just just to even raise doubt or a, a, a question is like detonating a bomb for them, right? And it's like detonating a bomb for them because it goes back to what we're speaking of right here, and that is meaning, mythology, and madness, <laughs> you know? Um, when we get into, again, secular myths, and we get into the narratives that we like to uh, find or derive meaning from, okay, on the basis of whatever the narrative or the agreed upon uh, story that makes our social spaces comfortable and then makes our personal spaces livable. Well, then it becomes problematic when you have someone who is wanting to take a more closer, critical and analytical look at the roots of a story or at the roots of a history, right? Because a lot of times we find ourselves dealing with mythological history. We don't deal with even history by way of facts. We can't afford to do that because a lot of our histories are ugly. A lot of, a lot of our histories, uh, you know, are deplorable and they have shameful chapters that comprise the tale. So it becomes uh, beneficial to shift our gaze, as it were, by telling that same tale with a different spin, a tail spin. <laughs> you know what I mean? Baloo and them. I don't know if you grew up in the 90s watching that show, Tailspin. Anyway, that's a tangent. But like, that's, that's at the heart of the difficulty that I find to have a conversation with folks is that, again, they don't want to be disturbed from their dream. I, was, I read a book, and I think I've, I've quoted a little bit from um, the late, great Dr. James Cone. And he wrote a book on Malcolm and Martin and America, an American dream or nightmare. And just contrasting, again, um, what human beings do by way of carving out meaning and using... Um, uh, these kinds of, um, you know, literary devices in narrative form to, to create a perspective, right, that they're comfortable with and that will ease the conscience, you know, and, and you know, and um, <laughs> make it easy to sleep at night. And so they're married to those kinds of deceptive narratives and will defend to the death that narrative 
uh, rather than um, deal with transformative truth. Deal with the truth that would have to cause them to change their perspectives of self, of society, their behavior toward self and society, because it's too unnerving and unsettling to depart from what has been normal. Even if normal is malignant, uh, even if normal is destructive, because it is comfortable and familiar, it, it gets defended. And that, for me, is where um, we turn the corner into madness, right? Meaning myth and madness. When we defend these uh, both secular and sacred mythologies to the death, irrespective of the fact that these mythologies are um, destructive, that these mythologies uh, are malignant, that these mythologies will ultimately uh, breed more uh, divisiveness um, as we're drawing lines in the ideological sand and daring people to cross us. <laughs> and, and that's a problem. That's an issue, you know? And we have to find a way, politically black people, to do the work, right? Of ascertaining, understanding, apprehending, comprehending the ways in which we have pledged our undying dogmatic religious allegiance to secular and or sacred mythology to our own detriment. Or we're going to stay stuck and we're never going to be able to grow. Our efforts will be stymied, will be stunted, will be stagnant, and will be stopped. As a matter of fact, we won't even be uncomfortable being limited by others because we would have become acclimated to uh, the aforesaid limitation. You know, it, it, it wouldn't even dawn on us to think beyond the lines and the contours of control that have been orchestrated by other hands, by uh, oppressive mentalities, right? Because as I've stated in other podcasts, it, it, there's nothing more beneficial and or be, befitting um, to the dictates of domination than to streamline one's energetic investment by incorporating the dominated to, be, to become, to use uh, words from the late, great Dr. Amos Wilson, self-oppressing or self-dominated, you know? And, and in a sense, we become deputized to carry out the dictates, prerogatives, and concerns of those people 
who rule over us, right? Okay, and, and, and that deputizing, right, is, is seen as promotion, is seen as political, social, and economic favors. It is seen as social currency and some sort of prestige. And it's something that swells the chests of fathers and sends the hearts of mothers a pitter-patter because their sons and their daughters have gotten the cosign by fill-in-the-blank oppressive personality who is, who is actually snarling and we mistake the snarl for a smile and we think these folks are benign and we believe we're not being manipulated and or used but nothing can be further from the truth when one would just take the time to assess, to reflect, to investigate, to question, to pull at the threads. And that's all I'm getting. See, and that's what happens when um, we are so uh, inundated by fear and then the guilt and then the shame of even just having an honest question. A lot of times in our circles, it's us that keeps us in line. Yeah, it's us that that become, again, both the the warden and the inmate. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, in this this sort of uh, sociological, political, economic schema of domination, you know, we become a part of the scheme. And then, you know, of course, the scheme becomes a part of us. And as we go about just um, living from a foreign paradigm that we associate and we conflate with ourselves, we don't even understand, you know, that we are agents in, in our own subjugation and the maintenance of our domination. Yeah, it, it's comfortable, it's safe, it's normal, it makes sense, right? With respect to this narrative or several narratives that may be, um, that may be operating uh, contemporaneously. You know what I'm saying? Like it's, it's that deep, it's that thorough, and it's a part of uh, the human condition. I said it in the prior podcast that for whatever reason, uh, for human beings, narrative and story has been a useful tool for us um, as we, you know, wrestle with our survival interests overall. You know, story motivates story. It shapes, you know, these, these narratives. Again, they, they give us uh, a feeling of significance, a feeling of, 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 of placement. This is my place. And there's a security in having placement. There's, there's no denying that. Otherwise, we wouldn't utilize story the way that we do. 
if it was useless, if it didn't serve some sort of overall benefit, then I do believe it would be discarded, right, in general. But what I'm talking about in particular, as it pertains to meaning, myth, and madness, is the way in which story has been inverted in terms of its survival usefulness for our community so that it now undermines our survival capabilities and capacities to thrive beyond the limits of our environmental, political, social, spiritual circumstances, right? Under the auspices of what? Again, oppression, domination, you know it. I know, I know. It's like broken record kind of a thing. But I, I got to keep drilling it, you know, if, if for nobody else, at least for me, <laughs> so, so I can have my footing and be sober uh, in my steps that I take, you know, to kind of ensure that I'm not being hampered, that I'm not being limited, again, that I'm not being stunted and or stymied and stopped in the development of my capacity to realize my fullest potentialities along the continuum of my self-development. You understand? And that for me, as the place of primacy, that, that's where my personal allegiance lies. You know, not in, uh, not in a dogmatic uh, submission to a story that while maybe comforting is is, is murdering the development of the aforesaid potential inside. You know that thing that I talk about in the intro? That inexhaustible, energetic ingenuity that's part and parcel to the melanated mind, the overall black experience? That. That's what I'm talking to. You know what I'm saying? Like, if, it's, if a story or a myth is killing that, well, then the, the myth and that story needs to be discarded. And, and if and if and when it serves, we can create new myths. You know. I think I'm coming to terms with the fact that human beings, for whatever reason. Um, dabble in myth or myth uh, becomes some sort of necessity I, I guess when you're dealing with myth, it allows you, if you're using it um, appropriately, I guess it allows you to see beyond your present, right? Like, like I think there's, a, there's a, of course, a direct correlation between mythology and imagination. And imagination is important, right? Because it allows you to envisage a possibility beyond the present and or current moment okay so you gotta you gotta see it in your mind first right so you can go beyond and accomplish more and and become greater right but what i'm saying is under the auspices of oppression and domination that your mythological imaginative capacity gets limited <laughs> right it says here and no further, uh, these are the spaces you can go. These are the possibilities that you can 
uh, explore and anything beyond that um, is a breach, you know, or is rude. Here comes the shame and the guilt. Right. Or how could you, you know, divert from the beaten path? How could you think that there's another way to think of a thing or to do a thing? You understand what I mean? Then we get we get, you know, we, they get us socially. That's how we get got, you know, you know, human beings being social beings. Right. And so the, 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 the threat of being ostracized. Right. Or marginalized, casted aside, castigated or whatever like that keeps a lot of us in line in that aspect as well. You know, because we don't want to lose social currency. You know what I mean? With our with our community, you know, and that's unfortunate because then a lot of us remain in our cell because there's company there. I don't want to go this thing alone. Uh, but, you know, we got to be courageous enough to count the cost, to use a biblical referent, and... Um, Cut these losses because they're not really losses anyway. You know what I'm saying? It's really, it's really better, you know, to, to, to be understood as kind of a pruning process. You know, when you have to cut plants and cut the dead things off so that it can grow beyond the thing that would spread if left unattended. And a lot of us are walking around, you know, with, with excess, you know, excess baggage, luggage we don't need to be carrying, you know, a dead mentality that's going to do nothing but perpetuate, you know, putrefaction, right, and decay. And death, lifelessness, it's, I mean, we don't got to do it. But a lot of us feel obligated, right? Because we've been indoctrinated to have a dogmatic allegiance to the myth. The myth that gives us meaning. Or the myth that limits meaning, depending on your perspective. And that parlays into madness. You know, it is. Um, it's, it is madness to consider <laughs> that a difference of an opinion can result or parlay into an obituary. My difference of, of an opinion should not have me, you know, having to be eulogized, but we see it play out on the social stage all the time. In, in, in American history. We've seen it. We've seen it play out. You know, I'm thinking of the activists now, you know, um, you know, uh, uh, the Malcolm, the Martin, the Mega Evers, you know what I'm saying? Um, you know, the, the, the Panthers, you name it. You know what I'm saying? All of our folks in our uh, community who, who have been on the assignation politically black, who have tried to resist or just offer another perspective for their folks that 
there's another way that we could live. <laughs> there's, there's a quality of life that we could apprehend and it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be bogged down by by the uh, whimsical dictates of white oppression. It doesn't have to be that. You know, and people people outside of of that orientation feel threatened and again they want to defend to the death um, those values. And they have. And probably will continue to do so. <laughs> and that's that's the reality of it. You know what I mean? But anyway, I'll probably have to get another episode in that deals with uh, again um, meaning, myth, and madness. This is just kind of a survey of ideas, um, not fully exhaustive in any stretch of the imagination. But I got to come in for a land and listen. It's not just about parsing out the problem, but it's about shining a light on those persons in your community who are doing an incredible work. Black brand. Blackbrand.biz, if you are industrious, endeavor to be industrious, entrepreneurial, endeavor to be entrepreneurial, you need to link yourself with the network and the nexus of powerful, like-minded individuals who have um, your economic good, both in head and in heart. Blackbrand, blackbrand.biz, a 150-year economic plan in the making exclusively for politically black people I sign off in love peace and confrontation um, black man I love you black woman I love you black babies I love you what will we tell our sons let's get out here and be the light let's understand that we are the solution and house the capacity and the wherewithal to overcome and mitigate many of the issues that are pervasive in our community understanding that we are uh, the answers to every prayer that we've ever prayed in or articulated Ultimately, we are the gods that we seek. If it doesn't serve you, you should not serve it. And let's get out here and do something incredible this week. Let's do something that's going to make the future proud. Let's not be fraudulent, um, but let's be vigilant, right? And uh, until next time, everybody, please be safe. Sign off in love peace and confrontation. Take care. Peace.